So we're back with another utility strategy podcast. And you know how the deeper you get into the city, the more complex your project gets. There just are so many factors that we need to take into account. And Jerry Aliberti is a civil construction professional with over 18 years of experience who's worked on highways, bridges, all across NYC area. And he's here with us today to talk all about it. Jerry, how are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing great. Thanks for inviting me to the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. So give us a brief about yourself. Who's Jerry? What have you been up to? Sure, no problem. So over 18 years into the uh, New York City construction market, predominantly uh, highways and bridges. I've worked with several different contractors in the metropolitan area. I've also expanded beyond the metropolitan area as well. Fortunate for me, I stayed curious throughout my career and I've ran my own projects out in the field. And I also run my own projects in the office estimating. So I have a knowledge of how the two departments come together and what's required to get the job done. Give us the definition. What does the estimator do? How does your day-to-day -day look like? What are the challenges? What are you up to? Basically it all starts off with a set of plans and specs. So there's the jobs that are already designed that already have the established specs. And from there, we take those, we put a perspective to it. Basically, you got to really be able to dissect sometimes thousands and thousands of plans and thousands and thousands of spec sheets and be able to come up with numbers in such a short amount of time, sometimes working on multiple bids. And then there's the design builds where in addition to what I just said, on your particular team, you have a designer who designs the project for you based on a certain amount of criteria that the owner wants. The day-to-day -day operations for an estimator first starts off with coming up with quantities. And then from there, you translate those quantities into a price. And what experience you're able to break down each of your quantities and put together a price. You have to be able to separate each of your prices where it makes sense to also communicate that price if you're a low bid to the field operations as well. Another major part of being a good estimator is also understanding the logistics and the environment that you're working in. New York City has some of the most congested streets in all of the world. You're building bridges and skyscrapers over people's heads, literally. You're opening up massive holes in the middle of city streets that have spaghetti mazes of utilities and these massive holes are right next to existing foundations that are 100, 200 years old. So there's just a lot of logistics. There's just a lot of prep and there's a lot of coordination that's required. In addition to what I just mentioned, you have to understand escalations, which is more important than ever with the current state of inflation. Some of these jobs are four or five years out. Well, how do you determine the escalation on a specific item that's four or five years out? And in this climate. Exactly. Fortunately, it seems like prices are starting to dip down, but that's just not a fact just yet. Hopefully things will continue to go down in the coming weeks and the coming months and stabilize more. So the typical three, four or 5% escalation per year still stands. That's not the case anymore. So it's definitely add a lot of complexity to our jobs. In addition to that, you have tight deadlines. I've worked for multiple companies where some jobs were $5 million and some jobs we estimated were $1.2 billion. You have thousands and thousands of plan sheets and you're trying to figure out how to put this all together and within a couple of weeks. In the field, you have years to build. Estimating, you have a couple of weeks to build it all in your head. And you're trying to figure out all these escalations and logistics and what's there today 
compared to what's going to be there in the next two, three years and what the current state of affairs is, because the economy is always changing as well. So there's just a lot of things that have to come together. Some things are luck. Some things are just having good management to be able to understand what's going to happen in the coming months as well. And then there's just the risk and field conditions. As you gain experience, there's different parts of the city, as in any other city, where there's just different challenges. And it takes experience and it takes having a good team as well. So you have your plans, you have your specs, but there's a lot more to it to understand how everything comes together and how the price and how to break down your pricing. That pretty much sums up what an estimator does every single day. It's not easy. You go many, many, many months losing jobs. Some companies, depending on how much profit they want to put on, how many chances they want to take, sometimes you win one out of every 10 bids. Some companies you win one out of five bids. Some companies you win one out of every 15 bids. That's why it's important to treat your estimators right. When you win a job, it's crucial to celebrate because you have very little celebrating in estimators. There's a shortage in estimators. Well, there's a massive shortage. Nobody wants to sit in an office anymore. Let's face it, most people get into construction because they want to be around the equipment. They want to be around the machines. They want to be around the trades. They want to be around all the construction that's happening. It's a lot more exciting. You put your boots on every single day. You're outdoors. You're walking around. You're not sitting at a desk all day long. You're exercising and you're just dealing with all different kinds of situations every single day. Sitting in an office, it's a lot more of a calmer environment, but it also brings on its own stress because sometimes you're working on multiple jobs, really tight deadlines. You're sending in RFIs and these RFIs get sent back to you via addendums. So now you have all these addendums coming in. And sometimes when you're working on large jobs that have thousands of plan sheets, sometimes these addendums are several hundred pages long. So now you have to drop back. You have to go through all these plan sheets. Some agencies tell you exactly what they're changing. Some agencies don't even tell you what they're changing. You have to go through every single line item and you got to make sure your takeoffs align. And then you got to go to your pricing and you're doing all of this while dealing with your subs and putting together your numbers and you're going through your sub scopes, which don't normally come in until the very last couple of days. So the last couple of days leading up to your bid date can become very stressful. A lot of long, long hours, long days. I've had bids where I never went home that night. Job went in at 10 o'clock in the morning. We literally stayed at the office throughout the entire night. It gets really crazy. Sometimes we'll go back to our desks and try to sleep for an hour. These are the reasons why I think a lot of people don't like to get into the office. Plus, you know, let's face it, times are changing, right? Nobody wants to set a cubicle anymore. <laughs> a lot of the old school construction owners just don't understand it. And they haven't sat out of a cubicle for many years themselves. They're typically on the golf courses a lot. So, you know, they're bringing out people and their business development. That's part of the process as well. I think that's the main reason why when I talk to a lot of people, everyone's like, I can't sit at a desk all day long. And I get it. I understand. I've done both. I'm fortunate to have run my own jobs and I'm fortunate to have led my own estimates. So I see both of it. It takes a lot of experience because you really need to understand how to take a plan sheet and build that in your head and work with a team. And then while you're doing that too, you're also training the younger generation as well. So in addition to all the work that's required to put together an estimate, you're also building a team as well. So it comes with a lot of challenges and the bigger the company is, the more corporate it becomes. So then there's all the corporate stuff that's involved, having to explain the job to the higher ups. You know, when you're working for a smaller company, it's more intimate. So you're just constantly talking every single day and you're not going through the same old conversation with five different layers of management. 
I've worked with several different size companies and each brings its own pros and cons and it brings its own pros and cons to each of these departments as well. I, I say all the time in your 20s and 30s, you got to just stay real curious. You got to see what's out there. I know this can be arguable to some, but staying with the same company your entire career, yeah, you really don't know what your full strengths are and what you're really capable of doing if you're just doing the exact same thing every single day for 45 years of your life. You know? All this goes hand in hand with estimating and working for different companies, you have a different experience as well. You mentioned the younger generation before. I think that in general, what we're seeing in the industry is the lack of the younger generation even making the step into the industry, especially maybe in the trades. I think society is just pushing college on a lot of people. And listen, that's great. I got a college degree. I took up architecture in high school. I tried civil engineering for several semesters. It wasn't for me. So I switched back out and I got a degree in architecture with a minor in construction management. It got me my first job and my first boss told me, listen, you got a degree related to construction. Now it's up to me to teach you. And it yeah. all comes down to experience, right? So you got to give opportunities. If you're in a blue collar trade and you show that you're able to communicate, you're able to put things together on your own, you're a decisive person, why not give the chance to that person to become a super and then eventually a PM one day? Why not give the underdog an opportunity? That's just my logic. But as far as getting into the trade, there is a lot less people getting into the trade. So in my opinion, I think we need to start talking to high school students a little bit earlier, maybe taking them on field trips to construction sites. Because when you're in high school, you start talking about what your next steps are in life. A lot of people, it's just, okay, I'm going to go to college. And they just follow that typical path of going through life. Go to school, go to college, pick up a couple hundred thousand dollars student loan debt, and then go work for somebody. Well, why not push somebody to become an entrepreneur one day too? We'll start picking up on high schools a little bit earlier and start bringing them to construction sites and start doing a little more exploration a little bit earlier. Do you think uh, technology has a place also to take on part of that burden of the shortage in the industry of manpower? I think so. I think the industry is really starting to understand that the shortage is real. And now with this whole infrastructure spending in the U.S., the money's yeah. just starting to, it's going to just start rolling in now at the back end of 2022. And I think it's really going to start rolling in in 2023. So now what's going to happen when all these jobs are getting released and there's nobody to build it? This is my opinion. I think a lot of these major manufacturers are really going to ramp up their tech. For example, you know, to finish a bridge deck, you need a machine called a bid well. Well, maybe they're going to start putting lasers on these bid wells. And instead of having 25, 30 workers finishing a bridge deck, Maybe they're going to introduce tech into all this existing equipment where now you're only going to need five, 10 laborers and a couple of masons. I think naturally a lot of these big names are going to really start pushing new tech and they're going to start trying to implement ways to reduce the amount of labor that's required for all these operations. As far as digging goes and as far as 4M is related, you know, when you're digging for utilities, a lot of that is handwork. Part of that is just slow, slow moving work when you know something exists. So there's really no way around that, right? You're going to need several people in the hole and the trench, and it's just going to be a slow, tedious process for safety reasons yeah. as well. I think that there's a huge opportunity in the construction civil engineering industry, because unlike many other industries, there's a lack of. 
And I think that for companies that are developing unique technologies and capabilities that would be able to enhance the workforce that are boots on the ground or the guys who are kind of planning and creating the design, I think that could be a meaningful opportunity for these companies and a meaningful opportunity as well for the stakeholders in the construction project lifecycle that can take advantage of these technologies. Absolutely. There's plenty of money in construction. It's a massive, massive business. I just think a lot of companies are really slow to bring it in tech. So um, they got the mindset of if it's not broke, don't fix it. But if yeah. tech can yeah. make you even more money or less stress, why not try to implement it? It's that transition stage that gets everybody fearful, right? Everybody fears change because you just don't know what direction it's going to go. So you always yeah. want to stick to what you know. But if you introduce tech and it can make operations easier, it's going to cost you money up front, right? It's an investment. Jerry, do you think that this kind of rigidness and maybe closed mindset is preventing our industry from evolving and maybe evolving at a pace that other industries are evolving at? You know, I'm the extrovert type. I like to communicate with a lot of people. I always like to stay curious. I always like to ask a lot of questions. There is a bit of a generational gap in this business, right? What I notice with the younger generation too is that the younger generation isn't so fearful of change, right? They want to see the company that they're working for evolve. When you're working for a company and they're just sticking to the same ways of doing things because they have the mindset, well, we always did it like this. I think a lot of the younger generation gets very discouraged about that. And I think that's part of the reason why tech is so slow to come into our businesses because a lot of people don't want to change. I mean, listen, you know, when, when, when you're a company owner, it's your money at the end of the day, right? So it's a lot easier to talk to you the yeah. employee <laughs> about making changes, but when you're the employer and it's your money you're and taking the risk. Yeah, right. It, it, all the risk is on their lap. And I, and I get it. I understand. But there is a gap happening, right? There, there, there's a lot less people getting into the trade side. Uh, I know for me, I've estimated for many years, and there's a lot less people trying to get into, who, who are willing to get into estimating as well. Yeah. So, you know, how do we, how do we explore this and, and how do we make it a, a lot easier? Um, and again, I, I think just, it, do you think is, is, um, is kind of that conservative mindset and how much of it do you think is about avoiding liability and avoiding real risk? You know, like we're, we're in the construction, right? There's a lot of risk here. Oh, there's a tremendous amount of risk and yeah. insurance rates over here in New York have absolutely skyrocketed, skyrocketed the oh. past 10 years. A lot of these companies, a lot of these trades, for example, painters who are always working up in the air, all it takes is one incident and they may lose a lot of jobs because of that, because now they're working comp and their insurance rates are going to go through the roof. So there is a lot of risk and that's where good management, good toolbox talks and good safety department comes into play. I know before we get going on a project, some of the first things we got to do is explore for utilities, right? And there's a lot of unsafe conditions underneath that ground. And there's a lot of conditions that you just don't even know exists. So up front, there's quite a few toolbox talks. A lot of the major utility companies would come in. 
if there is major work for their specific utility and they'll have their own toolbox talks and they'll just kind of explore the area with you and they'll give you a heads up of what to expect, who to call if there's a certain condition. Uh, as you start opening up the ground, there's certain odors you should be looking out for. Obviously, if you're working around gas mains, you shouldn't be smoking cigarettes, you know, just common sense, <laughs> things like that as well, right? Yeah. You know, when I was always digging, I always told my guys, I want a grading plate on the bucket. So there's the teeth on the bucket and then there's a grading bucket. I always use the grading bucket so it wouldn't just cut right through a utility. It can if you're too aggressive, but it's a lot slower to do that. If you got a good operator work, they'll know what to do, have a feel for any obstructions. Now tell me a bit about what the utility risk feels like in downtown Manhattan. When you're taking on a project there, like you mentioned at the beginning of the episode, a spaghetti bowl, that's a bit what it sounds like. I mean, New York City, it's like what I said, it's a spaghetti line. It's just a maze of utilities, right? So New York City dates back a couple hundred years. A lot of great elevations have changed. Roadways were built on top of roadways and a lot of utilities were abandoned. Some of these records are a century old. So a lot of the as-built weren't recorded properly. So there's just a lot of abandoned utilities that you always have to treat live, right? You always have to treat live and then you have to take the proper precautions and proper protocol to explore these utilities that are not in the plans and to figure out what's the next steps for that. There is a tremendous amount of construction happening in, in all major cities. So to get a hold of these utility companies sometimes can take days. It can really hold up your schedule. So a lot of people try to cut corners, which is not the right way of doing things, of course, right? So the major utilities in New York City are gas, water, electrical. There's still a lot of steam, oil, and telephone. I've never experienced this myself, but I've seen pictures where some of these cuts were 50 feet down. And I'm talking every couple of feet, there was just a dozen utilities just crossing each other. And all these utilities are supporting each other. And you're trying to implement systems to keep these utilities from sagging down. And you're trying to build whatever you need to build around these utilities. So it could become very challenging. Naturally, New York City's got a lot of skyscrapers, a lot of buildings right up against each other. The subway system is the biggest in the world. The New York City subway system has the most amount of train stations in all of the subway systems in the world. So all these subway systems require utilities and its own infrastructure, in addition to all the skyscrapers, in addition to all the house connections. So it can get very complicated. The first couple of months of every job is always the slowest because you're just exploring, you're doing a lot of test pits. I've had jobs where I did test pits and we thought we were 100% certain that, okay, we're in the clear. And next thing you know, we start excavating and boom, we hit something. And I've been on jobs where we knocked out a primary line for Con Edison and we knocked out an entire neighborhood. And luckily nobody got hurt, but we've hit plenty of secondary lines. With small little hilti guns, we've hit gas lines and everybody would start smelling gas and that's when we made proper calls. And the gas line was there and we saw the gas lines, it's just that there were other lines right alongside of it that wasn't laid out. That's another major concern too. And this is where I think the technology of 4M is really a necessity. A lot of utility lines are laid out at a certain location. And when you start excavating, those utility lines that are marked out six feet north are actually six feet west. It's completely off. And this comes with experience as well. And it also comes with a good operator as well, because the operator is going to know exactly how to feel. They're going to know their machine. Having the right people in that trench as well is always a necessity. So they're able to hear certain noises. They're able to understand exactly what they're hitting. Maybe it's just a simple rock. So that's where experience comes in. 
Where does the challenge of utilities meet your day-to-day? Are you able to accurately estimate the risk of utilities? How does that work as an estimator or even as a project manager? It's very hard to tell which utilities are going to be in your project on your site. So how do you even take that risk into account? How do you calculate that? When a job is either a design build or already design project, I bid a lot of public work. Right, so the owner is going to give you as built, and based off those as built, you're going to construct whatever you need to construct. That's in the plans, and that's called for. Now, as far as estimating that, some agencies give you contingency items where you provide a unit price. So if you hit a certain line, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars per linear foot to fix this problem. Some agencies don't even give you that. So that's where a good estimating team says, okay, in this area, we know we're going to be hitting a lot of lines that are not in these plans. So you either add a contingency or it's change orders. So you never want to outsmart your competition where you're putting in more money. Estimators rely a lot on project managers to be able to understand what a change order is. So you need to get paid extra for certain things that are not in the plans. So some agencies are going to give you a whole list of items that they want you to provide a unit price for. So they don't have to go the change order route and they can keep the project moving and they'll just pay you that unit price. Now, depending on the experience of the estimating team, if you know you're going to hit a certain amount of items, from there you're going to bid up those items because you want to make more money, obviously, in construction, right? So if you know that a specific item is not likely to be hit, from there, you're going to price it down because you want to get the job as well. Now, if you're working for an agency that doesn't have those items, from there, you rely heavily on the field to understand what a change order is. For me, when I was running my jobs, I would look around and I would look at the manholes. I would see what's around there. I would try to make heads or tails of what's existing by looking at it above the surface versus what plans they gave us to bid the job. And I would try to call those utility companies ahead of time and say, hey, listen, we're going to start doing X, Y, Z in the next couple of weeks. Just want to give you a heads up that I see your manholes in the area, but I don't see too much information on the plans that has anything to do with your work. So I want to give you a heads up that we may encounter your work. And then from there, some utility companies would send somebody out there and I would meet them out in the field. And some are just so busy where, hey, listen, if you hit something or you encounter any of our utilities, just give us a ring. It's unbelievable that the system still works like that. There's a lot of criticism on the utility owners. Why don't they send out guys for every time they get a call? For every project that's going to happen, they just can't. But on the other hand, we're going to have all these utility strikes because they're not sending guys out and they're not sending information. And even they haven't found the right way or don't have the capacity to take on all these, let's call it support requests. It's disturbing because they have a responsibility, right? If there's a utility owner of a gas line and they know that there's going to be construction around that gas line, that's something that you want to be aware of and you want to coordinate and this work to be done around that. And if that doesn't happen, it feels borderline negligent and I'm not quite sure who's responsible. And it's also for safety reasons as well, right? I had a bridge project once where there was a very high transmission line, a gas transmission line. All the plans called out was just to maintain this existing transmission line. There was no special kind of demo procedure that we had to follow. So we bid the spec and then we get out there and they're like, no, this is so high powered, so high capacity where we're going to have a full time inspector with you guys. They gave us a 30-minute toolbox talk before we started. Basically, they started the toolbox talk by saying, listen, if you guys hit that, two things are going to happen. One, you don't need to worry about demoing the bridge no more because it's going to be demoed already. (laughs) 
<laughs> and two, we're not going to have any bodies to give to any of your families. So that really got everybody scared, right? <laughs> and then from there, it turned into a very, very large change order. So basically, we did not follow the existing spec. They kind of took a step back and they said, okay, this is Con Ed and they're going to pay you extra to do all this special kind of work. So we had to use much smaller guns and hammers and we had to go really, really slow around this particular transmission line times two spans. So we went an additional 15 feet beyond. They hired a vibration monitoring company and they hooked up to the transmission sleeve to make sure that there wasn't a certain amount of vibration going into the sleeve. And then we actually had an opportunity where behind the abutment wall, we were actually able to hook up a vibration monitor to the actual main itself going into the sleeve. That was exciting. You know, that really had a major impact on the schedule as well. And that was a situation where it was up in the air. You know, we knew it was there. There was one single note in the plan, but it turned out to be this massive change order. How do you find you know, out about it? Like if it wasn't described in the plans, there's going to be this like, huge issue that you need to take into consideration. What stage did you find out about this? Thing? It was in the very beginning. Naturally, I had to make a phone call to get everything marked out, right? 811, yeah. call before you dig. So, so 811 put up their finger and said, guys, this is going to be... Guys, this is something big is happening over here. And I'm not sure what your protocol is, but we got to make the proper phone calls. And that's what happened. It kind of worked out for the best because I was able to have a full-time inspector on that job for that one utility company. Yeah. We talked every single day for a while. He always just showed up in my office trailer, nice, bright and early in the morning. And a good guy. Exactly. And it was three different bridges and we encountered that issue on all three bridges. Not the transmission line. The transmission line yeah. was one. And then there's just a whole bunch of other jobs where there's old clay pipes. You go anywhere near these clay pipes, you put any kind of pressure, these pipes are just going to rupture. And then once it ruptures, it's your problem. Now you got to open up this clay pipe and now you got to replace it. And some utility companies are like, well, the notes are in the plans. It's your problem now. Well, I mean, mistakes happen as well. It goes back to estimating. I was told once it's very easy to make a $10 million job, a $15 million job. It's making it that $9,900,000 job that makes estimating so difficult. So we can keep putting all this risk and all this contingency money in, but then you'll never get work either, right? Construction is extremely risky. But if you keep looking at it that way as well, you're just never going to get work. It's tough. It's a fine line. It does take taking a lot of chances. And utility work is always a major, major item where contractors can either make money via change orders or just lose a lot of money a lot of money, lose their shirts. And it's typically items that are done in the very beginning of the job. So the last thing you wanna do is be in the red so so much in the first couple of months of the project as well. That's where front loading the job is important too, because in the beginning of the job, you're doing test pits and you're doing a lot of utility work. So you wanna put a lot of your money in the front of the job so you get a lot of your money up front as well. So later on in the job, as you start hitting these, these risks, when you start hitting these problems, at least you got money in the bank. Well, at least that's the game plan. What do you think happens more kind of gut feeling? Do you think contractors are losing money because of these change orders or that they're making money? That's tough to say. A lot of it also has to do with your management team as well. I had a job once where we had a 48 inch pipe and we spent three days locating this 48 inch pipe. We were wow. digging and digging. It's deep. It was a really deep pipe and it was on a slope. This was in the outskirts of the New York City metropolitan area. 
we found the pipe. We had the surveyor come. The surveyor, he locates the pipe for us. He puts it in his GPS. We backfill it. And now we needed to drill soldier piles for a lagging wall. And wouldn't you know, the surveyor marked out that pipe in the wrong location. So we did our due diligence. And wouldn't you know, we drilled right through this massive pipe. So now guess what? It was on us. It cost a lot of money. Now we have to redig that pipe and we have to work a lot of hours. That surveyor was private. You guys hired him and he made no, the mistake? No, he worked for us. And that was a major storm pipe and it collected a lot of storm wall. So we needed to get this thing fixed before the next big rainstorm came. That's mistakes that happen for the GC as well. There's just so many ways to make money and there's so many ways to lose money in utility work. And that's why knowing exactly what you got, I mean, I don't think you'll ever know exactly what's underneath the ground or at least in the immediate future, but knowing more and more about what's in the ground ahead of time, before you even put a shovel into the ground, will just save so much time and save so much money. Cause I don't think contractors are looking for change orders in this direction. You know, we want to get the job done. It's in our best interest to get this job done as smoothly as possible and as quickly as possible. The quicker you can get the job done, you save on escalations and you save on overhead costs as well. So the last thing you want to do in the first couple of months of your job is get slowed down. So that's why it's more important than ever to use technology in the utility exploration space to find what's in the ground beforehand. If I'm a GC, the best change orders are the ones that I can predict or that I can foresee. And probably with utilities, that's extremely difficult because you just don't know what you're going to get. It can be a good surprise and it can be a terrible surprise, right? It's like one of these board games. You just don't know what's going to no. show up. I know several contractors where they'll bid really cheap with profit in hopes to get a lot of change orders. I mean, to me, that is too risky. I mean, I never push too many change orders. Luckily for me, I have a lot of experience in estimating and I have a lot of experience in the field. So I'm able to take those estimated unit prices because a lot of highway and bridge work is a lot of unit price work as opposed to other agencies are a lot of lump sum items. But even lump sum, I know how to break down my numbers. So for me, I never really push change orders, but that's also because I understand my unit prices. I know where the money is as well. I don't want to slow up the job because that's going to cost you money in a different area as well. So it depends on what the change order is about, who's paying that change order and what they're willing to pay for it. Because a lot of people don't know how to break down change orders and don't know how to utilize a change order. You know, some pieces of equipment, they'll count as one piece of equipment when that piece of equipment is actually three, four different pieces of equipment because that overall piece of equipment is retrofitted. Like for example, yeah. a crash truck on a highway. You know, a crash truck is multiple different pieces of equipment and that flat truck was retrofitted for that sole purpose. So people need to understand that about the business as well. We normally end these episodes with two last questions. So the first one out of the two, as an estimator, what would be the biggest piece of advice that you can give to your fellow colleagues who are working on projects in downtown New York City? I would say explore estimating and explore field. A lot of people just want to stay out in the field and they don't want to explore estimating. If you don't know how to estimate a job and you don't know how to put together that cost, well, how are you going to track your costs out in the field? I think that's why a lot of these numbers and a lot of people just don't make money on projects is because they just don't know how to track their unit costs. You're supposed to know your numbers every single day and you're supposed to know how to plan as well. And a lot of that is taught in estimating and vice versa. So what I tell a lot of the younger people as well is just to stay curious. I mean, in the beginning of my career, I never wanted to stay in the office. I always wanted to be out in the field. 
And my bosses pushed me to stay because they knew I had an estimating mindset. I was able to put crews together without too much supervision on their end, right? And luckily for me, it just worked out for me in my career. Second question, who do you think we should have on next on our podcast? I would say a gentleman named Matt Graves. Yeah, okay. he's more in the commercial space. So he can okay. give you some insight of how the building construction goes. So we'll have to follow up after the episode and talk about that. So shout out to Matt Graves. Jerry, thank you so much for being on our episode today. Lots of amazing insights on what the estimating work looks like in downtown Manhattan, the epicenter of the urban life, and talking about how to operate around that spaghetti ball. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you. Likewise, and thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.